Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jason Cabinets Experience. Here at Cabinets HR, we have some exciting news to share. We are doing a rewards-based crowdfunding campaign for Cabinets HR starting March 2nd. We are doing this rewards-based crowdfunding campaign to continue the build-out of Cabinets HR. Our rewards include Cabinets HR t-shirts, social media outreach for you and your company, ebooks, webinars, and more. You can go to the Cavernous HR Indiegogo link at https colon backslash backslash cavernousHR.co slash crowdfunding to donate and for more info. Thank you for your time today and remember to be great every day. This is the Jason Kavnis Experience, hosted by Jason Kavnis. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners and startup founders and other interesting people as we gain great insights about business, people, leadership, HR, and how each guest strives to be great every day. Hello, and welcome to Jason Kavnis Experience. I'm your host, Jason Kavnis. Our guest today is Jerry Wang. Jerry, are you ready to be great today? I am. Jerry is an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley with a background in tech startups, software development, marketing, and operations. He made his first website at 13 in 1996 and has been building websites, applications, mobile apps, and chatbots ever since. Prior to this, Jerry served as a Marine Corps combat engineer 2003 until 2007, doing construction and building elements for the Marine Corps, including the Board of Defense Arizona. Currently, he is focusing in on food and retail bringing e-commerce best practices into the brick-and-mortar world to bridge the gap between the online and the offline. Jerry, thank you for being here today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So, Jerry, what are you focused on right now? So, what I'm focusing on right now is uh, building retail stores in the middle of a pandemic. Um, I find it to be a, a very, a very, I actually lucked myself into this situation. And, uh, what I'm actually enjoying about it so far is the fact that it's making use of, of a wide variety of skill sets I've learned in the past. And, uh, it's a day by day challenge. Every single day, you wake up, there's always something new to look, to work at. And so for me, the way that I have built my career up, the way I've kind of gathered up my skill sets, it's, it's actually the perfect use. It almost feels like every day you gotta wake up and you gotta be Batman and you gotta tackle all these issues and figure out how to approach it, how to solve it. And uh, not only that for yourself, but also for your team, for your customers, for your partners, investors, backers, and stuff like that. So there's a lot of things involved. So for me, I actually, actually enjoy it right now. So Joe, are you talking about like actually brick and mortar stores? Yep, an actual brick and mortar store. So uh, about two, about a year and a half ago, I transitioned away from doing uh, technology work, although I always had like a, a one foot in, one foot out type of approach. And a year and a half ago, I was able to work with somebody to open up our very first retail store. Uh, we made a ice cream shop that serves out boba teas, snacks, uh, to serve out a local community uh, nearby. And that started the process of learning the ins and outs of setting up like a quick service food restaurant. This year, I got myself into an opportunity where I was able to open up my own coffee shop slash boba tea shop out here in Silicon Valley in downtown San Jose. So now that that's my second store, and I'm also working with my partner on that store to help her 
uh, run the other store that she has. And we're always on the hunt to try to figure out how to get another restaurant or get another business going. So always looking around to try to see if we can scale out what we have learned and built so far. And this is what you mean when you talk about think, offline or online or online or offline? Yeah, so this is a really interesting topic. So one of my backgrounds has been working with uh, working in digital agencies to help people with uh, consulting on their e-commerce business, digital marketing, try to figure out how to grow, whether it's a Shopify store, Amazon brand page, or whatever the case may be. And one thing that uh, is kind of a wave from quite a few years back, and it really actually originated in Asia, was this concept that uh, it's called O2O online to offline. And it could also be inter- interchangeable. So you could also do an offline to online type of approach. And the basic gimmick is this. Uh, imagine back in the day, like when we're, when I was a little bit older or a little bit younger, like we would go to, you would go to your mall to, to be able to buy stuff, right? And then obviously Amazon came in, changed a lot of that aspect of it. People are comfortable with paying with credit cards online and buying stuff online and stuff like that. But there was still kind of a challenge where in the past, those two worlds didn't really quite connect. And it's only recently that you started to get to a sense where it's like, yeah, you can order something online and pick it up on the curbside. But a few years back, that was not a thing. You know, it was only recently that that become a little bit more normalized. What's happening this year is that that is actually accelerating. So if the opportunity is... Or if the situation is, is that you can't no longer walk into a retail store, interact with someone there um, in order for you to make a purchase. But yet at the same time, it's a little bit soulless to be able to just buy stuff online, take a look at pictures, rely on your reviews to make your decision-making process. Um, there is a blend that some people are working on right now to kind of bring those two worlds together. So a couple of elements of that would probably, would probably be things like having an AI chatbot to facilitate uh, some decision-making or recommendations on your end. Also, the other way to kind of look at it is how do we bridge the gap in terms of supply chain management? If you're able to scout out and look in a local area and know of your inventory from different brands, different stores, uh, surfacing that in a way where someone can buy that online on their phone, on their laptop, and be able to go pick it up in real time, that's also something else that a lot of people out here in Silicon Valley are working on to try to figure out bridge that gap. And so now we're starting to see this online, offline type of approach to figure out how to bring those two things together. So Jerry, are you going to expand to all kinds of retail or just stick to a certain type like liquid beverages? Or are you going to expand to different types of retail? I think right now at this point, I think I'm going to focus entirely on food just because uh, a, a long time ago, someone taught me this really great adage. At the end of the day, no matter what, it, what happens, everybody has to eat. And so if you could focus on trying to figure out how to bridge uh, that element, bridge the complexity of managing, and this is only after I started working in the business, I realized how complicated it could be. The food supply chain trying to figure out how to get food from farms, whether it's local or far away, the ability that uh, our systems that we built up has been able to kind of transfer vegetables, proteins from all around the world to end up on your table, to be able to figure out how to solve that and make it more efficient, to be able to figure out how to leverage uh, a, a team, a crew, because you still need people to be able to make your food for you. Um, to be able to blend all that stuff together and at the same time, be able to help people even discover you to be able to enjoy your food. Um, that's a big enough challenge right now. So I think I'm going to focus entirely on that world for, for the time being. Okay. Yeah. Cause there's a guy up here in, in, in Seattle with Bunko Labs, Richard Breon, he's trying to do the same thing. 
And we did a test yesterday, and he actually said, you know, like, I can't, well, I can't name the guy saying the software in the world, but he said, yeah, well, the world can eat software, right? You still have to grow food and deliver it, right? You still have to eat. Everybody's got to eat, no matter what happens. Exactly. So let's table this for a minute and go back to, I want to go back to your background. When you were 13, you won some kind of contest, right? Talk so, about that. Yeah. So this is actually really cool. So I actually grew up with the internet. So uh, ever since I was a, a kid, um, I was actually very fortunate that in my household, we had access to computers. Uh, we had access to a modem way, way early on. So this is back in the day when like you had, you're having 2,400 baud BPS, 2,400 baud modems, you know, back in the day. And I got to learn how to build uh, PCs with Intel 386, 286 chips. And where I was trying to learn how to figure out how to put like things together and then make it work. And to me, it was, it was bedazzling. Um, this little box with all these little electronics inside it was able to open up a whole new world for me. And so I was really, really early on, really grateful that I had the opportunity to be able to have access to those type of things. Um, I discovered the internet way, way early as well. And uh, being back in the day, I was kind of left to my own devices to figure out how to solve this and solve that or do this and do that. So one, one particular opportunity I was given was at a certain point back in the, back in the 90s, somehow, some, some way, I end up on the website uh, where they were asking for people to design a web page. And at the time, I figured out how to design web pages by, you know, doing things like GeoCities or Zoom, all those old, old sites back in the day. And so I actually built a pretty darn cool website um, showcasing. And this is where the fun part was. This whole contest was held by a university in, uh, in a country, Taiwan. And so that was where I, was, I grew up in. And so I originally was from. And so I was able to put in Chinese letters to figure out, I figure out how to do the Unicode to be able to put in some Chinese letters. I figure out how to make a Java applet that does a reflection of, a, of an image and all this stuff was just stuff I kind of was trying to learn from other people about figure out how to do it. And so I put it all together, submitted it, didn't think anything else about it. Cause I was like, who, what, what's going to, what's going to happen? They're not going to pick me. And lo and behold, my mom gave me a call because at the time she was still living in Taiwan. She gave me a call uh, a few months later saying that the city of Taipei asked her to show up for a award ceremony. And she at the time didn't know what any of that was about. So she was like, what the heck is this internet thing? What's this webpage thing? What is this? What is all of this? Like, what, what are they trying to invite me to? And I didn't know what to say because I was like, well, show up if you can. She didn't take it seriously. So what she told me after the fact was she actually went shopping. She went grocery shopping. And right before the thing, and when she showed up at this official looking type of place, she had her shopping bags, this and that. And they were so happy to meet her because they assumed she was the one that did it. Obviously, she wasn't. And so they granted her this award with my name on it saying that, oh, this is great. This person did a great job on this website. And then she just goes around talking, thinking to herself like, wait, my son's 13. What are you guys even talking? He's not even in this country right now. He's in America. And you say he made this webpage? So it's a very different, it's, I think it's a very different experience from what uh, kids are used to right now. Like the type of youngsters that I see nowadays where they're able to go out and do hackathons over the weekend and be able to do this. The level of skills that they have versus what I had doing back then is way beyond what I could have been capable of back then. So I think it was just lucky on my end that, um, lucky on my end that at the time, no one else is on the internet. No one else knew what's going on. And so I got the opportunity to actually try to make something cool. So that was a really, really quite a crazy trip I had.
Well, let's have it at 13. What age were you first got started getting interested in internet and computers and stuff like that? Probably like 11 or 12. So that was like a really, a really long time ago. And so, like I said, I, I remember back then uh, we had the first on our block in our neighborhood, we were the first ones to get CD-ROMs. Uh, we had a one X CD ROM that we were able to build into, <laughs> we were able to plug into a PC. I changed my whole entire world, man. Cause once, once I'm able to pop in a CD with a encyclopedia on it, I was like, wow, this is, I could just sit here and just read the stuff all day long. Once you strapped on the, the modem, I was hogging up the, the phone line almost every single day as best as I can, just because the access to information, the ability to see what other people are doing um, and the best part too, this is how it began with my software engineering kind of career was the trick back then was you were able to view the source code of any page that you browse. And so when I find something that I really like, the ability for me to actually inspect the code and take a look at how they built it triggered this whole thing in my head where I was like, oh, if they could figure it out and the source code is literally right there, I too can figure it out. And so the way I had approached this problem wasn't so much like, I want to go to school and learn about this. Cause at the time school wasn't teaching any of this stuff. So my approach was, I'm just going to keep on hacking. I'm going to take a look at how they do this. I'm going to reverse engineer it. I'm going to hack around it. I'm going to try to figure out problem solve it. I'm going to ask questions and see how that goes. And so that kind of began my little unconventional software career where actually it did take me about 10 years to finally learn how to code properly to be able to be a professional software developer. So it's kind of a long journey, but I, I wouldn't give up for anything else in the world. So Jerry, you often hear the term good code, bad code. What is, what, is that even a reality? Is that really a, a thing? Is there such thing as good code, bad code? What does that even mean? I think there is. So it took me quite a long time to kind of figure this out as well. So one thing I had, I think <clears throat> my approach to, to, to software, to tech, to all this stuff, um, I've been immersed in it for quite a long time. And so my view has always been like an inside out view. So I never really kind of looked at it from say, hey, you know what? I'm from a different part of the country or from a different part of the world. I'm always excited about seeing how, you know, all these people in Silicon Valley are walking around doing their thing. I get to see it from, from the inside out view because I grew up in Cupertino. I grew up in Silicon Valley. So I've been here almost my whole entire life just watching people around us trying to figure out how to do this and do that. And so I think I had this mentality back then of thinking to myself, everything that I was making in the beginning was bad code. And I assumed that by default, everyone else we might have gone to school, might have done this, they might have got a, a, you know, a degree in this and that. They were writing good code because how will I know the difference, right? If someone had graduated from, say, Stanford or Berkeley or Harvard, whatever the case may be, and they're writing code, my assumption is that they're writing good code because they went through that process and those type of colleges would not graduate somebody writing bad code. It took a long time working in the field inside the industry to come to this realization that that's actually not true. So there is a difference between good code and bad code. And the way I look at it is good code is something that is actually something you can maintain and it's something that's accessible. It's not so much about whether or not you're right in the right way or the wrong way. It's just the fact that you're able to have a second person be able to understand it. That's the difference between good code and bad code. You can write it all wrong, but if it's making it so that a second person or a third or fourth can read that code and understand what is wrong, then you actually made good code. 
it has to be readable by a human being in order for you to, to be able to have it be good code. You need to have it so that's maintainable, it's fixable, it's addressable. You can write the most efficient one-line code in the whole entire world, but if only you can understand it, that essentially is bad code. Like it might work, that's great, but what if you pass away and your legacy now is to get this riddle to somebody else to try to maintain that piece of code? That's not good code. So I think there is an element of elegance and beauty in terms of being able to communicate your software and your code to a human as well as a computer. So that's my realization in terms of like what's good code and bad code. And that kind of in turn kind of pushed me to say, okay, focus not so much on being more efficient, focus on more so how do I communicate this piece of work so that way other people can work on it with me. And that's how we can scale faster. I don't want to sit there until 12 hours a day. But if we have a team coming together and we all do our normal five, six hours out of the day to get something done, that's actually much better. So that's my take on it. So how, how, do, how do you do this? Like, I think the challenge a lot of developers have, this is my opinion, like they're, they're start a project and they, either, they have two ways to either like do a quick in a hurry and push it out and be kind of like a low quality, but you get the product mm-hmm. out there fast you can, or they take the time and have high quality. Of course, then it takes later for a product to get out there. How do you balance those two? So uh, one particular mentor I had throughout the, my time in Silicon Valley is this guy named Paul Graham. He started the White Combinator program. Um, he was an early coder for Yahoo. He did a lot of great work. He made his own little programming language. So he had a book out called uh, Hackers and Painters, where what he was trying to focus on is the fact that to a certain extent, when you're writing code, it's, it's very similar to you being an artist approaching a blank canvas and the way that you would get the code done or the way that you get your pain done is you continuously work at it, work at it, work at it, work at it. There are some people who are the type or that mentality where until the very last stroke, until the very last character, um, the work is not done. And so they keep on trying to add to it, contribute to it. The reality of it though, is that's not something that is, Deliverable, like you might be lost in the process of always trying to figure out how to make it so that the code looks great, it's better, is the pain looks good, or all this stuff is better. But you have to learn how to ship it. You have to learn how to get the code out there on devices as possible, so that it actually has a meaning for it. Because once you could find the meaning for the software that you create, this is the next professional thing that you should do. You got to figure out how to fix it, maintain it contribute to it, add more features to it. So sometimes people get lost in the sense of like, I want to make the best first version of something. When in reality, it's not so much about that. It's how do we get it to work just to get people to be excited about it. If you get some people excited about it, it's worthwhile for you to keep on investing your time into it. So I've seen people in the past, I've I've met people in the past where they, they literally put in a good solid chunk of their whole entire life in making this grand vision of a computer game. And it ends up being that no one ever got a chance to play it. And so to me, I'm like, that's such a, it's both beautiful and, <laughs> and sad at the same time, where it's like, you put in all this passion into something, but at the same time, you're not able to share that passion out. I wouldn't want to be 
I wouldn't want to be Van Gogh having put in all my passion on the paintings, but I'm only, only when I pass away that people actually are appreciative. I actually want to get a little taste of that appreciation right now, you know? Yes. So I yes. think it really depends on how you want to approach it. Do you want to do more of the elaborate way? Do you want to do more of a professional way? I think the time and the situation call for different approaches. Learning what the case is, having that bearing is actually also a very important part. Your next move, so after high school, you joined the Marine Corps, correct? Below after high yes, school? that's right. Yep. Well, can you talk about why you joined the Marine Corps and your experience in the military? Sure. So um, <clears throat> I got through, uh, I got to go through 2001, 9-11, uh, uh, back when I was in high school. Uh, that was my... That was my junior year, actually. And so that kind of shook a lot of things in my head. And I think one thing that kind of made it so in my mind was, you know what? I, I came to this country. I absolutely love this country. Uh, it's afforded me quite a lot of things. And so the time, I think the zeitgeist of the time was that um, we will like to contribute. People will like to help. And so my way of thinking about it was, you know what, I'm going to try to figure out how to maybe serve in my own way. And so 2001 was in the first, I didn't actually volunteer or enlist around that time. Uh, I enlisted towards 2002, the latter half of 2002, when I finally graduated from, from high school. And so I applied and the way that it happened was they didn't actually respond back to me. So I originally simply applied to, I applied to like some recruiter and they simply gave me some information. I turned that in a few months later though, a Marine Corps recruiter calls me up on a Saturday morning and invited me to go to the recruiting station and talk to them about seeing about my opportunities while working in the military. And one thing led to another where I was like, this is the right fit. The things that he was telling me about what the Marine Corps espouses, the values that their spouse, the challenges they had to face. Um, I thought to myself, like, this is kind of a fit for me, perhaps, just because I felt a little bit lost at the time. Uh, one additional thing that kind of clinched it, which he sold kind of well, was just the fact that at the end of the day, if you can meet up on the challenges that the Marine Corps has to offer you, it's by far the toughest out of all the branches. And so when you leave out of it, when you, what you can take out of it isn't so much, <clears throat> isn't so much of like they're going to pay you more or so much that your lifestyle is going to be any better. But it's like after you're done with it, you will be reassured challenges that you face later down the road are not going to be as challenging as the things that you're going to do in the Marine Corps. So in my, in my thinking, I was like, okay, it sounds like this is more of an investment <clears throat> to the rest of my life. Uh, I mean, if I don't die in, in a war or something like that, um, where I could get some dividends out of it. And at the time, my family was adamant about not doing it because coming from a traditional Asian household, uh, choosing choosing the military over college is not what you want to do. And so, yeah, yeah. I might like, say you're probably not the normal path. <laughs> no, and especially back then, the, back then, the, the mentality back then was also... Um, Electing to, to join the military at that time was a certainty that you're going to die because they're going to be sent to war. And there was a lot of disagreements about uh, the validity of this and validity of that. And so that conversation overcrowded of the fact that this is, to my sense, a form of service to, to the country. Um, and you the you joined too, right? Yep. So I joined up in, in San Jose. So again, I remember back then, a lot of, a lot of the conversation was like, Based around one, did you not have any other opportunities? Two, 
uh, are you poor? Is that why? Three, is it like, are you just not, are you just dumb or four? I mean, it was just a wide variety of all kinds of, of things. And so I, I blocked as much of that out as I can, just because once I set my head into it, I kind of said to myself, I really want to see if I can do it. Um, and to be honest, it was a very challenging for me in particular, just because my body is not meant to be to be a good marine. I realized I realized something afterwards. I was not a good marine to to the physical standards. Um, I was always the slowest. Uh, I was always I I you know it wasn't because I was lazy. It was just that I was always the slowest. Um, my crew helped me out and skipped past a asthma check, and I definitely had asthma. Where I was just like, damn, I can't I can't do this. But he was like, no, don't worry about it. I got you. So I was like, okay. I'm going to try for it. And so I'm actually very, very fortunate that never had an asthma attack in the military, never had that be an issue. But at the same time, <clears throat> I was never the, the most physical, the most fit, the most, I didn't look like a Marine. I didn't do any of that stuff, but my heart and my mind was in that place. The, the challenge of serving the Marine Corps, the brotherhood that I joined in on uh, made it so that I, I would do anything for anyone else that has enlisted or served in the Marine Corps as well. Uh, sight unseen, just because of the fact that I was given so many opportunities. I've been so grateful of all the, all the camaraderie and the, and the support that people gave me while I was inside it. So my heart and my mind definitely belongs to the Marine Corps, even though my body was never quite able to make it. Um, but I feel like I think I got a different experience out of that, which is, even though I was always the slowest, I never gave up. And even though drone instructors would, would scream and yell at me and be held behind while the rest of the platoon is running far, far down the road, I thought to myself, okay, if, if you're going to take the time to give me some special attention, let's make this fun. And so I'm going to run no matter what, even if I can't do it anymore, the fact that you're next to me and you're still going to make me catch up. I'm going to put all my heart and my mind into it. And so I'm proud to say I never gave up, even though I might be the last one to show up. I'm never going to give up on the fact that once I put my mind to something, once I'm surrounded by people of equal, equal heart, loyalty, and dedication, I will do my absolute best to, to give that back to people. So that was what the Marine Corps meant to me overall. You bring up a good point. Like a lot of people who have themselves in the military, they don't get or don't understand the bond that people in the military have, right? I mean, they, they just don't get it. And, and, and is, there's no way to explain it to them either, is it? No, there's not. And it, it took me a long time to, to, to come around to this. There was at a certain point, someone was mentioning me like, what, what was the whole point of this? And I think, I think the way I explained to him was this, like at, for a brief moment in my life, I felt this connection where it wasn't about going to war. It wasn't about trying to figure out how to kill somebody. It wasn't about trying to do your job or this or that. Uh, the connection that you feel when you serve in the military is the fact that a person to your left, to your right, is right there with you. And they feel the same towards you of helping you out and trying to make sure that you're going to be okay. And so... They're not there because they kind of want to. I mean, they got, they're there because they got an order told that they have to be there. And yet, despite all of that, no matter where you are in the whole entire world, the person to your left, to your right, will treat you with the same dignity and respect. And to a certain extent, for a brief moment, I felt the fact that there, people are willing to die for you. They don't know you, but the fact that you guys are wearing the same uniform 
The, the fact that you guys been through the same bullshit, the fact that you guys get both screwed over by a recruiter or by a military order or by this or by that. The common story, a, my recruiter screwed me over. Right? There's an understanding. And so therefore, that understanding is what ensures the bond is going to be real. It's what ensures that people will help you out no matter what. And once I left, once I got out of the service, that connection, I've never felt it. No matter where I went, whether it's a tech, a giant big tech company tries, that tries to pretend that they're all family and everyone treats each other like, you know, this and that, whether it's going to be a small startup where, you know, everyone sees each other every single day. I think the realization becomes that in those, in those type of places, people aren't saying to your left or to your right because they have to be there. They're there because they want to be there, or maybe they, they, they applied to be there and they're there just because of the paycheck. That's it. And they can leave whenever they want to. They can leave whenever they want to. So the bond is not going to be as sincere or it's not going to be as deep as the one where you are just a bunch of people (laughs) being forced to be in the middle of nowhere, told to watch over some stupid thing, being handed all this equipment that's way more expensive you could ever afford. And you're told not to break it. And you're basically trying to cover each other to make sure that you're going to get out of it. Okay. And so I have never felt that experience anywhere else. I think that bond is really hard to explain to people because they're just never experienced it. And so the only thing you can do is tell stories of it. (laughs) And hopefully the stories, whether it's song, whether it's movies, TV shows, essays, or the case may be, hopefully that could at least get the message across. And I'm sure it's been passed through from the hundreds of years that the U.S. military has been in service so far. So. Yeah, and I think a lot of people in the military struggle with that when they when, when they transition, right? They try to capture that and they can't. How, how did you deal with that when you left the military? I feel really lost when I got out. Um, there was definitely quite a, quite a long duration time. It almost felt like, to me, the metaphor was, for a while, you were huddled to next to a fire. Uh, and people to people around you were all huddled together around that fire at the same time. And when you leave the service, you are pulled away from the warmth of the fire. And now you're kind of left to fend for yourself. They might give you a box of matches and told you and tell you, go start your own fire to keep yourself warm. But the thing is, is that sometimes people don't have the, the means, the skill sets to, to start a fire and keep that fire going. And so the first year or so, I felt really lost because of the fact that once you got a taste of that warmth, um, it's hard to kind of find it elsewhere. And it's not given to you automatically. So I really had to learn how to adapt and learn how to kind of recreate that myself or find places where that's happening. So thus began my, my attempt at trying to figure out how to build a, a actual career, get jobs and try to fend for myself and kind of figure out how to do this and do that. And so deep down though, in my mind, no matter where I went, one thing that I always thought to myself was at least they gave me a box of matches. And so I'm going to go try to start that fire all over again. And it's only now after all these years that finally I got to a point where I've created something where I could build a team around me. And I'm trying my best to repeat that experience I had before where I could share a little bit of that bond, a little bit of that loyalty, that dedication with the people that are electing to work with me. Um, so they could get a sense of what that, that feels like, but it took me a long time to figure that out. So. Um, one way I'm paying back is trying to figure out support other military veterans who are being, who are trying to be business entrepreneurs. Um, so that way they can also kind of figure out how to 
find that for themselves. I feel like entrepreneurism is probably the closest, fastest thing for you to be able to do it. Because if you have a sustainable business, you have a fire. If you have a fire, you can get other people around you. So that's my kind of thinking behind it. So Jerry, talk about how you got involved. Of course, you already you already live in the Silicon Valley area. How do you get your career started in the Silicon Valley area? How did that come about? Um, I literally just walk into the door. And so, <laughs> so this is a funny story. So uh, I live in Cupertino. And so after I got out of the military, after I got out of the Marine Corps, um, the first year was moving back home, staying back home, feeling like dejected from the fact that I don't have I don't have that college lifestyle that everyone else around my age, my peers were experiencing. Um, I don't have any job prospects. And so one day I woke up, my mom was yelling at me about why you're always at home, why you always look depressed, why, 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 blah, 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 nonstop. And so for some reason, I decided to take a walk and I ended up walking about maybe a mile, mile and a half. And I ended up at a, uh, at a headquarters one of the buildings of a headquarter of a company that makes uh, a little device that everyone has in their pockets right now. And I literally just walked in. I followed somebody in. Once they flashed a badge and opened the door, I just walked in. And so one thing I did was I kept on asking people to sign for a job. And I was actually very fortunate that the third person I talked to happened to believe in me enough to be like, okay, I'll, I'll give you a shot before they call security and kick me out. And so thus began my, my need to have to learn how to use a Apple laptop to figure out how to flex a little bit of my web design skills. And I was actually very fortunate that led to a, a brief time where I was able to work on um, helping launch the iPhone back in 2007, 2008. And so I was building, I was building websites, um, <clears throat> helping manage uh, this new term I had to learn back then called knowledge management. So there was this concept, this idea that you would handle hundreds of thousands of support articles to figure out how to support all the different products you have, maintain all the different documentation. So it was essentially almost like working in the library. You just get abundance of information and your whole job is just to maintain that database and build new content, create new content, that's the case may be, uh, remove content, curate content. And so I, to me, I actually really enjoy it. Um, I got a taste, just like I said before, when I got my first CD-ROM and plugged in a CD for an encyclopedia, and I just went to town learning everything. This to me felt like that as well. Like I got access to archives, decades of what uh, this company was doing. And my whole job was just to figure out how to maintain it, how they support it. And I was just so in love with it. Um, and I was fortunate enough that they were working on this new project uh, and they were saying, Hey, you know what? We need you to update this file or create this new document to showcase that here's the prog manual before it even got released. Um, and we need you to kind of create the doc, the, the websites for it. And so to me, I was like, this is a front row seat to something that's absolutely amazing. So I actually was very fortunate that the very, the very first thing I did just happened to be kind of a straight to straight to the pros, straight to the Yankee stadium, just watching everyone else do their no, own no thing. Leagues, say. No, nothing, just right no, I just, I just, that was, that was the proximity just because of the fact that was the close proximity. And so that kind of began the whole thing where I was like, okay, this is really interesting because someone somewhere a long time ago built this out. They didn't do this overnight. They started out in the garage and they built this out to a point now where they're able to execute on some of these projects or some of these things. So in my mind thinking, okay, if they were able to do it, 
I can too. And so I kept on trying to figure out how to learn the next step, the next step, and the next step. So a couple other places I went to was uh, trying to figure out how to be a, a online journalist. So I started writing for Business Insider, for Gawker, for ValueWag back in the day. Uh, I got to work on marketing so I could learn about how tech startups deal with marketing. Um, I even got a brief, uh, I got a brief time while I was in Google doing their HR stuff. And they were able to talk about, they actually have an approach called people, technology, and operations. That's what they call their HR department because their approach to HR is that people, technology, and operations are equally the same and they're absolutely critical to the health of your organization. So my goal at the time was how do I go about all over Silicon Valley, whether it's uh, downtown San Jose, whether it's San Jose, whether it's San Francisco, Oakland, how do I just keep on knocking on doors? Because that was a strategy that worked for me the first time. Just knock on doors and just keep on asking, can I, can I help? How do I help? What can I do? And if I don't get any response, I would literally, my one trick, this is my one trick, but I didn't even, I don't even submit resumes. My one trick is if you have a company that you want to work for, and it's small enough where you could figure out how to find out the CEO or the founder's email. Your trick is to figure out how to look at their website, <clears throat> look at their offerings, look at their new cl- news clips, whatever the case may be. Outline three things that they're having problems with. Give them three solutions and email that directly to the CEO or to the founder. And the number of responses I got back from that was amazing. Like even if the CEO doesn't have time for me, he would kick me over to somebody else who does have time to talk to me. Just the fact that you took the effort to be able to pinpoint what problems they have and providing them some creative challenge, creative solutions for it makes it worthwhile for them to have a chat with you. Because if you're good at what you do and you spot some challenges that they actually are working on, they're going to try to figure out how is it that you figured that out in the first place? And second, how is it that you came up with a solution for it? Because they're probably discussing it right now in the boardroom somewhere and they're probably writing up ideas. And so we'll love to have a chat with you. And so yeah, my that, approach, that's, that's, good, that's just great advice, right? Cause that was my approach. I, every single time, like the problem comes from the fact that you have to do this over and over and over again, but the more you do it, the faster and the better you get at it. So now I'm at this point where if you point me any, any company's website, I can take a look at it. I can do a deep dive, go through every single page. I can point out maybe the fact that the graphic design doesn't look like it belongs there. Maybe they hired, hired out too much, outsourced it too much. It doesn't look like a fit. I can point out maybe the copywriting isn't that good. I can point out maybe something's too slow. I can point out maybe the fact that their PR, the press releases isn't, isn't written in the way where it actually makes a good case for what they're trying to do. I could point out the fact that um, maybe the software they have, once I make an account, I dive into it. This is broken. That's broken. This feature doesn't work. That doesn't work. And it took me a long time to figure that out. But I'm very grateful that every now and then there's, there's founders and entrepreneurs and other people out there who gave you a shot to, to let me be able to do that and learn those skills. So, so that's my way of getting through Silicon Valley. <laughs> yeah, back to your job thing. I mean, that's so great. Cause I think too, too many people look for a job now. It's all about me, me, me. What can this job do for me? Now I realize that like no one's gonna hire you for that. They're only gonna hire you if you can improve, if you can add value and you know, like like here I like to say you know Amazon hires you a hundred thousand, they expect two hundred thousand from you, right? And and so many people have a different mindset. Like and your way just upfront show how you can add value, just great. Start the conversation that way because if you can start the conversation right off the bat saying that I'm here to help you out, it changes the tone as to how they they respect you and how they treat you. 
Because if they see you as an employee, you will always be forever beholden to how they want to deal with you. If they tell you this is the policy, that's the policy. But if you start showing up the day one, you say, I'm just here to help. And here's the problem. And right off the bat, if you just leave me alone, let me do it. I can fix it for you. They actually might start trusting you. And once they start trusting you, it's a very different type of conversation or attitude they have. Definitely. Unfortunately, so many people don't do that, unfortunately. So a lot of times they don't. So when I talk to you younger folks right now where they're like, how did I start to, how did I get started in Silicon Valley? Do I do a resume? Do I do this and do that? I'm like, no, man. Like either just make something really cool that people will pay attention to or figure out how to help debug or fix someone else's issue, right? Right off the bat and keep on coming up with creative solutions, even if they're not right. Even if you're guessing, the fact that you're making that initiative, you're showing initiative, which is yet another something that you learn in the military, show initiative. A lot of people don't do that. Tons of people don't show initiative. They're only being told what to do and they'll only do that part. So if you take leadership, if you take charge, if you show initiative, that alone, just showing up, that alone can at least get you, get your foot through the door. And afterwards, of course, you have to bring some skills to it, right? You can't just be like, I'm just here super eager and I'm going to do, I'm going to do all this stuff, mess everything up. Like eventually you're going to get sick and tired of you. Like, yeah, you got to have some talent. You got to have, you got to back that up. You got to keep on studying. You got to keep on working. You got to keep on being a good person, sharing your knowledge, working with people, helping people out, bring good attitude to work every single day. Cause that's how you stay. Right. Cause otherwise, yeah, after a while, they just get sick and tired of you trying to help out, but it doesn't go anywhere. So the start of the conversation, at least so starts off with initiative, just show some initiative and go from there. Jerry, talk about a Silicon stereotype that's true and one that's not true. I think, I think, so I'll be honest with you. So here's what's hilarious. So I actually have never seen the TV show Silicon Valley. Partly just because I grew up here. So to me, I'm just like, I live this every single day. I don't know how, how a TV show is going to portray it or this and that. But there's, I think there's this sense where, there's a sense where um, people from the outside in look at Silicon Valley as the holy grail of all things technology. This is the source of where all the cool stuff comes from, blah, blah, blah. And, and unfortunately, that's not the case. So this is what's so hilarious about Silicon Valley, at least in San Jose, where I'm coming from. Uh, San Jose started out as a, as a military town. Uh, it's all farms. It used to be all farmland. It's all pastures and fruit yards and, and you know, all that kind of stuff. They were just trying to figure out how to grow fruits and make a living by farming. Then the military came in and started building a lot of these uh, Levitt towns, these like giant, you know, tracts of land just being converted into housing. And they kept on doing it, kept on doing it. And so the infrastructure here is actually very old. It's actually very outdated. I mean, there's a reason why Stanford's nickname is called the farm because it was literally a farm, you know? And so what's hilarious about it is despite the stereotype of like, this is where technology comes from. My phone reception absolutely sucks. The number of times my calls drop is almost every single day. I have oh, to deal I with never phone reception. I thought you had it at the top, the top, no. everything. Phone reception is bad. The store I have right now, where it's in downtown San Jose, historic building, Second Street, been there for a long time. Guess what? I only have DSL. That's capped at ten megabytes down. I have problems with connectivity. I have problems with this. Problems with that. Partly because. It's not, it's not a modern infrastructure. It was never meant to be. And the cost of implementing some of that scares even the likes of Google. They were trying to figure out how to build in fiber optics lines to figure out how to speed all this stuff up. 
And they gave up on that. Like if Google gave up on trying to figure out how to increase connectivity in San Jose, there's no one else that could figure out how to make that happen. Right. And so there is, there's this sense where it's like, we're at a weird crossroad where the, a lot of the innovation, a lot of the things came out of the area, but we're at a point where a lot of the infrastructure is aging. And if you don't take a look at the infrastructure that's built out in places like Asia, Korea, China, and stuff like that, they modernize recently. And so they get all the fancy 5G, quick connection, cheap stuff everywhere. And they take that for granted. Whereas here, I'm like, I can't even get fast internet on anything. Yeah, I, I was in Korea from 05 to 08, and people have no idea how far advanced they are as far as that kind of stuff. It's, just, it's like magic over there. It's, it's the future over there. And here we are still trying to figure out how to deal with this stuff. So the most futuristic part of the country uh, doesn't even have, you know, the oldest thing that you can find in Asia. Oh, man. That's but, hilarious. But there is one thing. So this is what's interesting now. Um, there is one stereotype about Silicon Valley where I think is still holding true. is the fact that at the end of the day, we still are innovating. And I'm doing my absolute best every single day. I'm trying to figure out how to make that happen. So what I mean by that is, for example, uh, at my retail store in downtown San Jose, I've worked with, I'm working with a company called KiwiBot. Uh, they're based out in Berkeley, California. Uh, they're started by a bunch of Colombian graduate students that came all the way to Berkeley to try to figure out how to make this project alive. And there are these little AI robots that will do delivery for you from point A to point B. And so I utilize these robots to deliver coffee drinks, boba tea drinks to my customers in the local area, in the downtown area. So there are days when I walk outside and you see these little lunar rover type of things self-driving around those electronic scooters like birds and lime, all that kind of stuff. They even got those now that are self-driving by themselves. The scooters are self-driving by themselves. There are self-driving cars rolling around downtown, learning how to map out the area and driving by itself. So you start to walk around and you get the sense where it's like, yeah, that's, that's a cycle of value I know where like at the end of the day, people are still trying to push the boundaries a little bit. Self-driving cars, self-driving scooters, self-driving robots that can figure out how to deliver stuff from point A to point B. That's still Silicon Valley to me. So that's still happening on a day-in, day-out basis. Why is it like that in Silicon Valley? Is it just an everyone's DNA there or just the way you've grown up, the culture? You know, just what, what is it? I think there's two parts. One is just the fact that there's a legacy there where people before us, the pioneers, that pioneering spirit never left. And each generation subsequently adopts that kind of approach where they have to say to themselves, um, before me, Maybe my, my, my granddaddy, my daddy, whatever the case may be, did X, Y, and Z. So therefore, I, into, I turn, in turn will want to figure out how to push the boundaries a little bit. And it's also a big draw from people all around the world recognizing this place. That's like, that's where you go in order for you to make it. Uh, just like how you go to New York to try to make it or Hollywood to try to make it. You go to Silicon Valley to try to make it. So you bring new energy year in, year out, where a lot of really talented and smart people come here to try to figure out how to make do their turn of this Silicon Valley journey. And I think it's also just the fact that the infrastructure, even though it's a little bit outdated, it's still built up in a way where it's conducive to try to create new things. Um, you do have the college system nearby. You have Stanford, you have Berkeley. You also have San Jose State 
which turns out to be actually one of the best engineering schools since the 70s, but such a hidden jam that no one really kind of pays attention to. And that's right, right dab right in the middle of downtown San Jose. So you have these college campuses where you have lots of kids who are really bright, trying new things all the time. You have these big tech companies that have established themselves for a long time out here. And you have generations of people who have come here to try to figure out how to make it. It's just perfect fertilizer for people trying to figure out, come up with new ideas and keep on pushing the boundaries a little bit, you know? And I could be wrong, but the gold rush back in the 1800s in that area too, right? The gold rush is also around this area. Uh, the military thereafter, they brought in a lot of people. So back then it was also the main industry was things with uh, military defense contractors. So you still have Lockheed, you still have a lot of big military contractor companies still out here at the, at the edges as well. And you have orchards, you have farms, you have fruit, you have all the people who are trying to make agriculture back then. That was like a huge thing, trying to figure out how to increase yields of harvest and trying to be innovative on that part. That was like the early, early Silicon Valley. That was like pre-Silicon. That was just like trying to figure out how to make things go faster, go bigger. So I think there was always this go big or go home type of mentality here. And that has never gone away. Those so, always some kind of pioneer spirit there. Always some kind of pioneer spirit. Always something like go big or go home, bet big, try, try things and see what happens type of mentality. I mean, I travel around the country quite a lot. Uh, and I, every, every part of the country has its own little unique thing to offer. And it's, I've started to see a little bit of that kind of mentality, that Silicon Valley mentality in other places. But at the end of the day, this is home to me. And so therefore, I, I just haven't found something where it's something where it has the same type of spirit, that same type of culture quite yet. Silicon Valley so far here. Like, you know, other cities like Seattle, Austin, Boston, where it could be, we won't be the next Silicon Valley. They'll never catch up, right? Silicon Valley is so far ahead. I mean, as far as VC money, investors, startups, all the metrics, I mean, they're so far ahead. I just, Silicon Valley shut down for like 10 years and I don't think they will still catch up, you know? I think so too. And then, but then at the same time, I think there's also this kind of cautionary aspect of it. So you look at something like Detroit, you look at some, a, like a city like Detroit, where it was the spearhead of the automotive industry for a long time. The whole infrastructure there was to figure out how to build these warehouses or distributors or, you know, third-party contractors that would feed into the system to build your car. And that was existing for hundreds of years. I mean, like a hundred years or so. And things started to kind of chip away at that mentality and things changed. And now it's not like where it was before. And so to a certain extent, I think that could happen at any given moment. And so despite the fact that you might have a lead now, that doesn't mean that you have to, you can rest on it. Like you have to keep on pushing, keep on pushing. So maybe that's the only difference is Boston can catch up. But at the same time, it will catch up. But if it doesn't keep on pushing forward, like Silicon Valley is, Silicon Valley still try to get ahead. So that's a key. Anyone else can catch up. Anyone else can work really hard to get to where Silicon Valley is at. But if you stop for just a moment, if you give up for just a moment, Silicon Valley goes right back because that pioneering mentality, that dedication, that loyalty, that, that perseverance, that grit is still always here. So. So Jerry, next I want to talk about new developers, whether someone that has a college degree or finished the Coding Academy and whether like they're young, college, you know, mid-age, whatever the case may be, that we got to start a new job, new career as a developer. What advice do you have for them? Always be curious, always be learning. I think that's always the most important part. Um, the volume of, of information, best practices, and um, all this stuff changes constantly. So the way I had looked at it was, 
I thought that when I first started, if you had to learn one computer language, one programming language, you'd be fine for the rest of your career. And it turns out that's not the case. Um, best practices and how things, how things are done changes almost in the beginning it was like almost like every, every other year, then it became every year, then it became every quarter. And then slowly I got to the point at one point I was really into this technology called react native. Uh, it was a Facebook technology that made it so that you could use JavaScript to make mobile apps. And when they released version 0.01, I thought this was really, really cool. Within a few months, then everything changed. Um, with 0 0.02, 0 0.03, 0 0.04, every, every new change just kept on making it so that it's more and more interesting, more and more weird. And you have to keep up. And so it's a, it's a treadmill that you jump on and you just can't stop. So one is be ready for the fact that you're going to be on a treadmill for a long time. Two is to get started somewhere. You just have to work at it. So make a GitHub profile, learn how code control works or version control works and submit code online. So that way people can judge you or work with you on trying to solve it, make it better. Look at other people's code so you can study how they do it. So you can learn the difference between good code and bad code and learn to collaborate and communicate. That's like the biggest skill that a lot of times people are overlooking right now. The idea of this Lone Ranger being able to figure out how to build a whole entire operating system by yourself, like Linus did, that's not going to happen anymore. The systems that we have right now is so complex that you really got to learn how to work within the team. You got to figure out how to be good at selling what you're doing so that way people pay attention and support you. You got to figure out how to be good at communicating what you're trying to do so that way they're not going to be confused when you tell them to open the door and they do it 10,000 different ways versus the one way that you wanted to do it. You got to figure out how to make it so that the work is enjoyable. So if you make it so it's a miserable experience writing code that's unmaintainable or you're just a kind of a dick or asshole to work with, that's not going to make people want to work with you anyway. So what ends up happening is, is it's not just about when you first get started, it's not just about learning to code. That's like, that's like the, the default. That's like the, that's like the bar. That's like step one. The real thing that you have to work on is how do you make yourself a better person, a more professional person that is, uh, a, you know, someone that wants to work with you, someone that's, that's willing to support you, someone that understands what you're trying to do and the plans that you're making to see the success that you want to see. Because if you don't work towards that, you can be the best coder in the world, but big companies are not going to call you back. Small startups are not going to keep you. And you're just left there trying to figure out how to make your own thing for the, for the next 10, 20 years by yourself. So that's, a, that's the thinking behind that. Jerry, do you think most developers don't realize how much time of their own personal time they got to spend on their own professional development? I think so. I think sometimes people underestimate that. I think there was oh, they a think the going to pay them to do it, doing it can be time. Yeah, I think there's, a, there's an underestimation of that. I think there's... there's uh, for, for a brief period, I think for maybe the last couple of years, there was a point where the overall community kind of felt like maybe they deserve every single thing. And so therefore they get a little bit more spoiled, a little bit more pampered. But I think at the end of the day, uh, there's always going to be corrections, right? Because I've gone through the first 2001 financial correction. I've gone through 2008. Um, obviously, 2014, 2015 was a small minor one. And now we're going through something also really quite major. Every, every correction to the economy kind of puts a, 
a sense of reality back into your life. Like the fact that you're going to get overpaid or just getting paid two, three hundred thousand dollars a year just to be able to write software. Like at a certain point, you have to kind of think to yourself, okay, that's not going to last forever, ever. Like if you're really going to be delivering that much value, the company sees it that you're worth maybe you're returning maybe double that wherever they paid you back in value. That value doesn't come magically. You have to work at it. And before there was an artificial constriction of supply for the demand. There was more people demanding or needing software made than there were developers and software engineers. And so for a brief moment in time, in the beginning time period, it was, well, there's just not enough people to do it. So I'm going to overpay a little bit. I'm going to pay a premium to get someone to help me with it. And that's not true anymore. Now you have developers and coders. It could be anyone around the world. There are amazing, talented developers in South Africa, in Egypt, in Pakistan, in India, in Indonesia, in Mongolia, in Korea, in Brazil, in Colombia, in Poland. Like The number of places where there's people who have studied harder, done more to do better coding than you, is popping up everywhere. And they all learn how to copy too. So they all learn how to copy Silicon Valley best practices, culture. They know how to figure out how to try to talk the talk and do this and do that. And so now you're not just competing against your local demand, your local supply of developers. You're competing against the whole entire world. So you really have to keep up. You have to invest into yourself. You have to do the work to make it so that you can always deliver value. So that way people always insist on trying to say, you know what, it's worth it to keep on paying these rates. Because when they have to make a judgment call, if you're going to be the type of person that's hard to work with, they'd rather pay that money way cheaper to somebody else. You know what I'm saying? So there's that kind of switch now to that, to that kind of supply and demand curve. Jerry, how should one pick, someone pick their first code or learn, or does that even matter? I think you should pick something where you understand it. If you could find something where you could understand it, that's, that's more key than anything else. So for example, um, <clears throat> when I started out, I was trying to learn my family was my, my uncle actually was the biggest driver of technology just because he got exposed to computer programming way, way earlier. Um, he was trying to teach me things like visual basic. He was trying to teach me things like C And my, you know, I was able to understand a little bit of it. I was trying to decipher the, the actual syntax and the writings and stuff like that. And my brain just never, it never clicked. It just never clicked where I could understand it. And so I started looking into learning HTML, understood that. So I was able to get, figure out, do that part. I was looking at JavaScript, figure out how to do that. And I was able to get good at that part. And I was trying my best time trying to learn Ruby so I could build websites with Ruby on Rails. And I kind of, just because that was the thing that everyone was into, right? And so everyone was saying, oh yeah, if you get a Ruby on Rails job, you're going to make a hundred thousand, you're going to do all this stuff. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go try and learn it. Two years in, I realized this was a mistake. My brain trying to read that code just doesn't, it just doesn't click the way that it's formatted, the way that it's the, the way that it's it, the way that they approached it didn't click with my head. And that's not true for a lot of other people. It works with them. They absolutely loved it where they were able to pick it up and, and do the stuff with it. But for me, it just wasn't the case. So rather than trying to berate myself and say, I'm just too stupid for this. What I did instead was I'm going to go find something else. And so that magic thing for me was Python. So once I learned Python, I was looking at Python, reading yeah, Python. Uh, we were reading that recently, like Python is actually a very good first language to learn. And I, I, I always thought Python was kind of complicated, right? We're on the yeah. knowledge, but I'm reading that actually Python is a like really good one to learn first. It's accessible. 
it's readable. Whereas other ones, you have to kind of learn, you have to learn kind of like the syntax or the special code that they're doing. With Python, once I started reading it, I was like, hey, you know what? This reads like poems, like stanzas. So it almost feels like you're writing little love poems to your computer. And if your computer loves it back, it'll actually do what you tell it to do through these little love poems. And so that clicked with my head, you know? And so it goes back to this good code, bad code thing. Make something that's accessible and you'll find your audience and the audience will then support you back. And so other people might have been turned off by Ruby, C++, all these other stuff, but they are in tune with what Python's doing. And in turn, there might be people who don't understand Python. They don't get it, but Ruby speaks to them. So your first language does not matter. Try all of them. I think the key here is trying to learn the concepts more, the computer programming concepts more, like learning what loops do, how to iterate, how do you do order of operation? How do you, how do you think, how do you think like a compiler or how do you think a computer, how to do logic decisions? Those are more important. The language in which that happens, it could come and go. And it, it will go quite a lot. Like over the course of my 10, 15 years, I had to keep on learning new ones over and over and over again, or there's new ways to do things over and over and over again. Within the JavaScript world, there's like 15 different versions of JavaScript that you could be using now to code, right? And each one offers a little, it's a different dialect. So even though everyone speaks English, it's like going to Boston, you have a different type of English. You go to New England, it's a yeah. different type of English. Yeah, there is a different English, they have a different accent, it's a different slight, slang. It's a slight, it's a slight time that's a little bit you different. Understand, you understand, you got to maybe listen just a little bit harder. Exactly, right? But then at the same time, if I bring a, a surfer bro from down in SoCal, I take, I bring some people over to, you know, Southern California, they're not going to understand what the surfer bro is trying to talk about. Like the vernacular and all that stuff, it's just slightly off by a little bit. Your goal is just to figure out how to keep up with all of that, right? And your goal is just to be worldly enough where facing that type of challenge isn't going to be a problem. Because if you're the type of person that's going to be well-traveled and professional enough to say, you know what? I don't care whether or not I'm hanging out with some people eating uh, lobster rolls and still speak to them in, in you know, a polite good way where they could make, we can make friends. Or if we're chilling by the beach in Southern California, I can still make friends. That type of mentality, that type of attitude is what gets you way farther than insisting what you're trying to do is the only way or pushing out anything else outside the window. That's the key. That's all good. I hope I, hopefully I think I, if people are looking at this and they could get a sense of like, you know what, Silicon Valley is actually kind of rad, but at the same time, it's grounding reality when this dude came and get such a lot of people don't think that like, they think Silicon Valley, right. you know, they're way up here. Like you all like no. reading re re minds and stuff, you know, and like, Super still the same problems, right? Still the same problems. Still got to pay rent. Still got to drive around. Still stuck in traffic. Still got to try to figure out what to eat. You still got to try to figure out how to go find your find a girlfriend, find a boyfriend. We still have the same problems. It's just that I think the the thing is is that you're amazed by the fact that a lot of people have chosen to move out here mm -hmm. to pursue something, and so you're just bombarded by the fact that there's so many smart people around you, and that in turn either makes it so you want to work a little harder to keep up or you just choose not to. And so that's like the biggest thing. It's just like, it's a little bit different out here, but it's not quite as futuristic as, as people make out to be. <laughs> yeah, that's like everyone, everyone just have a Tesla. There's no flying cars, you know? No, not yet. Not yet, but we'll see. <laughs> exactly. So we'll see. So Jerry, can you talk some about the challenges of people entering the tech career right now? Because, you know, there's this, I think this misstereotype, oh, go to Carter Academy, you know, get a $100,000 a job. 
but it's really not that easy, right? Yeah. Um, so I actually, I actually started my process, my journey of wanting to code a little bit prior to the, the phase where a lot of the, the code boot camps kind of popped up. And so when I first started back in 2009, 2010, it wasn't as, um, it wasn't as so much like you have a lot of resources available to you. There was resources available in the sense where a lot of people were willing to share what they learned in terms of coding, or there was ways that you could, you could figure out to get started on coding, but you really have to have the momentum. You have to have the initiative yourself in order for you to seek out those resources. Um, so the way I actually did it was when, when I was working over uh, at a big corporate company, um, I would do my nine to five. And I was actually also very fortunate enough where uh, after five o'clock ends, um, I didn't have to take my work home. So I actually would stay in the office, um, hide, hide myself in the conference room somewhere, eat the free food and <laughs> sit there and then just really bang my head against the wall, uh, watching YouTube videos, reading articles, or just trying my best to figure out how to uh, learn from trial and error. And that was a very frustrating process for close to six to nine months where it was in the beginning, it felt like you're trying to, you're going to the gym and you're trying to figure out how to catch up to all these people who are able to put, you know, push out 300 pounds weights left and right. You think to yourself, I, I want to do that. How do I do that? Right. And so you start off with the bare minimum of like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn what are the, what the terminology, how to do this, how to do that. And inch by inch, slowly but surely, it got to a point where I got some more comfortability. I got more confidence in terms of being able to know what I'm doing. Um, and I was also very fortunate that after I kind of started that process, six months later, randomly on Craigslist one day, I applied for a job for a software engineer job. And it worked out. And I was able to work at this spot, a startup in Berkeley, California for quite a while. And that's just kind of escalating the point where I was able to... I kept on saying yes to, to opportunities, right? So I think that was also the big thing too, is just be determined, keep on trying to find opportunities. And I was able to work myself into a situation where I became the product lead. I was managing a team of five other developers over in China. I had to uh, figure out how to work remotely. This is way back before all the, all the things I'm doing right now. And just trying to figure out how to make use of tools to communicate effectively, plan effectively, um, test for stuff, and then figure out how to find out how to build features. Um, I think my tips to people is definitely don't necessarily look at it as if I just go to a code bootcamp that, that inevitably leads to a job because I did have an opportunity also to work on the HR side for big corporate. And from my perspective, what we learned is just because you show up with a, say, a, a um, you know, uh, a stint over at Code Academy doesn't necessarily automatically lead you to being competitive because there's so many factors that go into play. Um, for example, if you go through Code Bootcamp and you don't time your, your, your exit correctly, say you actually end up uh, graduating in the summertime, you actually put yourself in a situation where you're competing with a lot of people who actually went through a four-year school or two-year school, and they too are very competitive in learning and knowing how to do a lot of the stuff you're doing. Um, so my tip to people has always been just focus on the self-improvement, focus on the determination, focus on trying to figure out uh, why is it that you want to do this, right? If it's for the money, um, salary-wise, the more that people are getting, the more that people are getting into 
um, the field, but obviously the, the lower the price is going to be for everyone's salary. So it's not going to be, it can't be a financial incentive. You really have to really like the fact that you can build stuff, um, whether from the internet, for a phone or for something like that, or you're really interested in figuring out how to build something for people to use. If you can focus on those things as the drive for why you want to learn software engineering or to work for a company that has uh, digital products that's serving lots of people, I think that's going to get you through a lot of frustration, a lot of uh, uh, challenges, the roadblocks that you're going to face along the way. Um, that said, inevitably, as you get yourself past those and you get to a very comfortable level where maybe you're past the junior level of, of being a soft engineer, um, the world does open up quite a lot. Um, you get a lot more opportunities where people are really eager to always find something, find someone like you that would be interested in helping them maybe start a company or uh, build products or be able to get into consulting or be able to move on and get into a situation where you're, you're managing a product that maybe could be touched by billions of people, for example. Um, so it's a, it's a long grind for me personally. I've been in Silicon Valley for close to 15 years and I'm, I'm still not even close to being at the very, very tip top. Right. But like from my perspective, I look at it as, you know, I'm very, I feel very fortunate and grateful that I get to work Um in a space where I feel really, really happy about where I get to work on technology, I get to work with phones, I get to work with computers, I get to work with all these fancy cool stuff. It feels magical to be able to say, hey, you know what, if I want to make a TV display certain things, or I want to show data, or I want to show reports, I want to show charts that I have at least the, the thinking to be able to kind of think that through. Um, and then be able to have, you know, the have the confidence that, you know, because I, I went through, I went through a very grueling process of learning how to code that um, I can actually execute on something like that. So definitely don't be discouraged. Definitely figure out how to find a determined way for you to, to stick with it. Um, and uh, the, the, the thing to also think about too is like you never stop learning. Like even to now, I'm still having to, to read through manuals of new code uh, releases, new versions, trying to figure out what is it that you know something's changed or how something's new. Um, the amount of effort that everyone else in this community um, putting out all these amazing stuff that never stops. So you're always going to be engaged with like new learnings, new, new methodologies, new best practices, new ways of doing things. It's, it's a very intriguing field to be in. Hey, Jay, can you talk about the importance of new developers, you know, having like always having a side hustle, so to speak, and also either having a portfolio or some have some stuff on GitHub? That is actually the by far the fastest, easiest way to get noticed. Um, the trick that we figured out way, way back has always been <clears throat> the resumes themselves speaks somewhat well in terms of kind of understanding who you are as a person. But at the same time, um, when you're, when you're trying to figure out how to find these particular jobs, what someone is looking for is looking to see if you can actually execute. So in that sense, showing off your, your side projects, showing off your previous work experience, showing off your actual code is the most, honestly, the most direct way of getting uh, the right people to take a look at you and say, hey, this might be the right fit. Um, when I was in the position of, of hiring, um, my go-to was always, has always been twofold, uh, two things. One is show me your GitHub profile. 
Um, let me, let me see, let me see a couple of things. Let me see one, just how you write your code. Is it messy? Do you document? Um, let me take a look at your code commits. Cause I could track, I could get a sense of like how you're going through the process, you know, by looking at your code commits, do you commit multiple times throughout the day? Do you commit late at night? Do you commit early in the morning? Um, do you make lots of sloppy mistakes or do you recover and clean up your, your, um, issues along the way. Um, I also take a look at whether or not you're implementing, and this is the thing that most people forget because they're still in, they're still early on in the process. Um, professionals get to the point where they know how the code and then they also know how to test for that code. And so a lot of times you get into a situation where um, self-taught developers, for example, kind of miss out on that aspect of it. But if I could see that someone has put effort and thought and care into maintaining their code base to the point where they're also maintaining the test units, the test suites, and being able to document the fact that everything is tested for, that also shows an elevated level of understanding um, that kind of separates you from the pack. The other thing too, also that is very, very helpful has always been just to say, Hey, have you actually put anything to production? Have you actually got anything into the point? And it doesn't even have to be something fantastic, but, um, just because Jerry, you can code. Yeah. I, I, I think, I think you'd be able to bring a point. Cause it's like a lot of developers, they love to build and go from sexy object to shiny object, but they never launch anything. Right. They never finish anything. Right. I think that's a great point. You just bring up. So that's actually the trick that most people actually fall through. Um, you, it, it's a three part journey in a sense where you have to get into the, you have to get into the first shallow end of the pool by learning how to code. Um, you have to rewire how your brain thinks. You have to think more logically, more systematically. You have to learn the terminology, the grammar of a coding, um, a, a code language. So that's the first aspect of it. The second aspect of it is to establish professionalism, which is to say, I could actually build this code base. I could maintain it. I could test for it. I could know if something's wrong. I could actually think through where that issue could be, right? You don't have to know how to resolve any bugs, but at least you kind of have to have a general sense of like, you know what, if something's broken, I, I could kind of get a general sense of where that is, right? So that's the next intermediate level. The final level you have to get to is you have to get to the point where you're actually in production phase. When that means is... Um, you have you have a nice little widget, you have a nice little mobile app, but actually have you gone through the process of working with uh, Apple uh, or Google to get into the App Store or the Play Store? <clears throat> that in itself is a whole wide range of issues, right? Um, and it could be a challenge. Like if you, ha if you have gone through that process, it definitely puts you miles ahead of most people that actually haven't got there. Because as you're going through that process of publishing something, of, of getting people to actually download it, um, you learn a lot of things along the way, like how do I actually build it so that way it's, it's easier for me to maintain it so I can keep on you know, updating it along the way. How do I even write release notes? How do I even gather feedback? How do I set up reporting so I can even know, like, you know, are people even using the features that in my mind, six, nine months ago, I thought was going to be a, a killer feature, a killer app that, you know, the whole world is going to use. So... So I think it's a, it's a three-part process and most people kind of start at the first part and they kind of think that my, 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 my race is done, right? But in reality, it's, it's a relay race where you have to get through each section to a point where you're very comfortable in saying, you know what, I actually know exactly what are the security files I need to, to generate in order for me to send this over to the app store and for them to accept it. Because if you can make it that far, it definitely puts you in a situation where you could take on product leadership a little bit more so, which in all reality, I'll be honest with you, this is why I kind of thought to myself, 
this is almost exactly like going to Hollywood. Everyone, a lot of times people want to be actors, but in reality, they want to be directors. So I think a lot of times people want to be coders when in reality, they want to be product managers. They want to figure out how to make something, right? That a lot of people are using on their phones, on their computers. Coding is just a way for you to be in that role. A lot of times, sometimes people want to step into a product management role. But then the thing is, is that if they start shooting off left and right, different features that they don't have the technical expertise to kind of back them up and understand why they would do certain things, they're not going to be a very good product manager. And it's not to say that you have to be a coder before you do a product manager, but it does help out if you could kind of do, if you have some basic understanding of all these little, all these little technical issues in the back. And so what I kind of learned from myself is I find that people who have that urge of saying, you know what, I, I like coding. I like solving challenges. I like solving problem sets. I like thinking through how to manage my data sets and all that kind of stuff. I also eventually inevitably want to be in a situation where I have a little bit more say at the table as to what it is we're building. Why is it we're building it? Right, and rather than just being on the other end of the other end of the table by saying, "Oh, I just I just got a whole new list of stuff I got to do from my email," and just gonna crunch it out in my little cubicle or wherever I'm at, and never giving it more foresight or more thought than that. So I think that's also the other aspect to think about. So, Jerry, I could be wrong, but like you talk about professor development for the um, coders, but I'm I'm guessing when I when a developer is hired by a company. That coder presumes that company is going to provide for, for professional development for them. But in reality, it's pretty much on the coder to professionally develop themselves, right? Yeah, I could see. Yeah. So it, it, it also kind of depends. There are situations where I have friends who work at way, way bigger companies where they're, <clears throat> they're, they're one part of the cog. They're one cog in the whole machine, right? Um, and so their, their role is actually very, very specific. And they get to work on teams where um, everyone has a role specific to what they're working on. And you get to some medium-sized businesses where maybe they don't have the luxury of having lots of lots of headcount, and so you're really having to to cover a lot of things, wear different hats. And then there's also the startup level where <clears throat> you actually have nothing, you have no resources, you have no people, and you're just trying to figure out how to make something happen. And so, therefore, you yourself have to kind of do every single thing. All along the way, people find I feel like this is a Bruce Lee thing I learned a long time ago. Water finds its level. So whatever it is that you're, you're at or where you want to get to, you'll eventually get to it because, you know, water finds its level. You're going to, you're going to push for it. You're going to keep on fighting for it. You're going to keep on doing it. And eventually you get to the point you get to the level where you're comfortable with it. And you don't want to proceed anymore. So I've have, I have friends early on, um, when I first started, when we were much younger and we were like, we're going to take over the world, we're going to do all this stuff. And we were so eager on learning every aspect of how do I code? How do I, how do I launch? How do I sub servers? How do I sub databases? How do I do all this stuff? And as the career progressed, they get that nice sign-on bonus, the offer letter from a big corporate, and they think they made it. And uh, they sit down, they realize, oh, steady paycheck is really nice. All these freebies, free food, free you know, nice offices is also really nice. Six months later, they're, they're, they get so bored because they feel like they're always having to do just one little thing, whereas before they were, so, they were covering so many different things. They complain and complain. Sometimes people actually would take the initiative to say, I'm going to jump off and go to go do another project. So you tend to see that a lot in, in the Valley where uh, people get bored and then move on to something else. But then you also get a lot of people where they're just like, okay, I'm going to stick around. I'm going to complain. I'm going to stick around. 
And then after, after a year or so, you, you kind of reach back to them and say, hey, how are you guys doing? They tell you, you know what? I'm actually very happy. I don't have the stress where I have to deal with every single fire that happens. If, if something happens, then I know that in the back of my mind, I can just write one email and someone down the hallway or somewhere around there can, can help me take care of it. And the reassurance of having a team dynamic where I don't have to stress about everything. They get to a point where they feel very comfortable about that and they feel very good about that. And so I think it's just a matter of what is it you're trying to pursue? This goes back to what I was saying. It goes back to what is it that you want to pursue? What is that drive? Why do you want to do this? And just be open to the fact that there's going to be so many ways for that to happen. Right. And if you're accepting of it and you're always open to opportunities, you're always eager to learn, you're going to, you're going to be okay. Can't promise you that you're going to end up, uh, you're going to end up being the next Zuckerberg or the next, you know, the next big shot billionaire, blah, 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 but you're going to be fine. Um, that said, it always rounds back to just taking a look and saying, Hey, you know what? Um, what is it I could do to, to help myself and help the team? That kind of eagerness, that kind of mentality will always have someone willing to talk to you and say, Hey, maybe you're a good fit for our team. Jay, so you talked about this a little bit already, but how, how do you recommend a developer to keep from getting complacent? I think part of that is always, always be curious and always find just always think to yourself not to be in a position of saying, <clears throat> this is it. Um, there's, there's, there's always a, there's always something else new coming out. And you also, you also on the other thing to also think about too is technology is now a very global a global landscape. Whereas before it might have felt like um, you have to come to Silicon Valley, you have to come to San Francisco in order for you to make it. And the last few years, especially the last year, as we're kind of focusing more so on remote uh, working and stuff like that. And just the fact that there's so many other cities that's popping up and also having a great uh, technology field or, or space there. Um, technology is really now a global dynamic and you're just one part of that and so one aspect of it is you can't be complacent because it's a very competitive field and it's a very and we're trying to lower the entry uh the the barrier of entry every single day and so Everyone going around saying we should teach coding to to grade school children, saying that we need to teach coding to coal miners, we need to teach coding to people in Africa, this and that. That type of initiative is never going to stop. There's always going to be uh, forces out there, groups out there, communities out there where they will see technology as a means for them to kind of get through the next few years, the next generation and so forth. So you're always going to be having someone somewhere eager to also do what it is that you're doing. So you always have to kind of be always forward looking and saying to yourself, how do I self-improve? How do I keep on looking for new things to try? How do I keep on learning for new things? Um, and then likewise, also taking a look and saying to yourself, like, okay, once I do all this stuff, um, you know, like not to be afraid of the fact that you're going to be replaced, but looks, looking towards how do I also help other people? Um, you might find after a while that if you get comfortable in knowing um, a lot of what you do, your trade or your craft, to also start looking outwards and say, maybe I should teach as well. And I find that teaching is also a great in, in, invigorating way of kind of recapturing that spirit of what got you into the space as well. If you can't 
honestly explain to another individual as to how you do X, Y, and Z? Have you truly mastered what it is that you've done or have you just kind of barely kind of know it? Right. So inevitably you get to a point where um, if you feel like I, I don't want to do any more, I feel like this is it. I feel like this is, you know, there's not much more to it. I think the next step to look to is just trying to help someone else also get to where you are. Hey, Jerry, I, I'm probably making this number up, but I, I mean, I think you agree with me. The, the future of, of coding is pretty, pretty good. Right. Cause I think I'm making this number up again. I, I'm pretty sure, but I think earlier we had to hear that there's like 20,000 empty coding jobs in Seattle. Of course, they do have Amazon, Microsoft, Expedia, but there's like coding jobs all over the place. Right. It's just pretty, you know, I want to say easy field to get into with opportunities there. Correct. I think opportunities there, and I think it's also it's also if you if you take a step back and you look at it from like a, a micro a macro economics kind of perspective, um, you're also on this curve on this curve line, right? The jobs will always be there. It, it just then becomes a, a matter of you know is the pay level gonna gonna correspond to that? And it could be that there's a shortage of of <clears throat> you know bodies and headcount. So therefore, you could find yourself in a really good situation where um, you can leverage those things into a really good payout. Um, there's also situations where, you know, the, there's, certain, there's certain specific fields in computer science and, and software engineering where it does take a long lead time in terms of understanding something very specific before they'll pick you up for something like that. Mm-hmm. So if you're, if you're knee deep into, you know, machine learning research, if you're knee deep into general AI research, those type of stuff requires a good solid PhD before you even get to that into, into something meaningful, doing something meaningful in that space. And so there are definitely going to be more opportunities. There's definitely going to be more ways that you could find yourself working in the industry. Um, whether or not the pay or, or commiserate to, or, or, you know, relate to it, that's another factor. My thing has been way back, way back then, I always kind of saw uh, inevitably that uh, a job in computer science or, or computer engineering might be very similar to eventually being like a blue collar job uh, in America. Right. Yeah, I remember there's an article on that a couple months ago, like, you know, comparing coders, like the coal miners and no blue collar workers. It's the future blue collar worker. And it's I, I agree with that. Yeah. So you get to the point where like inevitably that could happen if everyone else surrounds you, like if every every Joe, Bob, Mary, Sue, if everyone knows how to code right? Then do you have something that's unique or special? Then you have to really figure out how to seek out something that makes you stand out because at that point, it then becomes a retail level job. And you know what though? Here's the funny thing. So, so in my transition over from um, uh, the technology world into the food restaurant space, there was one thing I kind of thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, when I was working and, and talking to other business owners, owner operators, the emphasis on, on technology isn't quite there because their background isn't, you know, from technology. Their background is figure out how to make you a really delicious plate of food or a great drink or being, you know, making a space really hospitable for you. So therefore, you want to go back and revisit. They're really good at crafting that kind of experience. And when I got into the space and I'm hiring for my team, I'm trying to build my team out, I'm trying to build my culture out. What I noticed that is 18 year olds are actually very, even though they might not sit there and actually code out individually on the laptop, the amount of extra work they have to do nowadays amounts to them almost being like a coder. And what I mean by that is if you sit there and you think about it, Right now, across America, all these different restaurants, you have 18, 19-year-olds, teenagers, maybe even younger than that, 
where they're told your job now isn't necessarily just to say, I'm going to take your order, press a button on the screen like McDonald's. Your job now is to figure out how to deal with DoorDash, figure out how to crunch in the right numbers, contact the right people, figure out how to, you know, fulfill something, figure out how to go from one system to another process to another system to another process. That inevitably is computer science based. You're stuck in this world where all these other coders have literally built all these little screens around you. And your job is to operate every single one of those. And so you're stuck in this loop that a coder has made for you. And what I saw is that if you have the drive to, to kind of see yourself in that situation, there are, there are people who are driven to say, I want to improve that. And I have people that's amazing on my team where they kind of see all these little, little elements of like, I have five different iPads now I have to monitor in order to figure out where their stuff is going in. They come to me and they say, hey, Jerry, I have this amazing idea. What if we do blah and blah and blah? Or what if we organize it this way? Or what if we do it this way? And that right there was, to me, it was a reminder, like you are literally just like, reshaping the matrix in a way in a coding in the in the computer science type of way without you even realize it of coding and so i think the con- the concepts are really great that we're kind of spreading this out i think inevitably a lot of people are going to pick up a lot of the computer science concepts that we we now take for granted but back then it was all pioneered by really smart people over at big colleges big universities putting all this all their career into it um and now we're in a situation where a lot of this coding stuff it, it's kind of getting more more natural for people to kind of participate in so inevitably your job is to figure out be one level up above that Hey, Jerry, not to geek out too much about tech, but I don't think a lot of really people realize how like detailed tech is. Like when I, when I got involved with tech like a few years ago, like I didn't realize it was front end, back end. A lot of people think coding language, like one language. No, it's really like, you know, React, you know, <laughs> Node.js, Kotlin, yep. Rails. You know, if you, you had to do something for the, the platform, the website, the Android app, the iOS app. Yep. You t- I mean, not, don't geek out too much. Can you talk about a little how, like, how complicated that is? It, it does get complicated, but then at the same time, I feel like it's one of those things where um, I think it, it's a matter of trying to build your comfort level with it. Um, and, and what I mean by that, for example, is I have friends that have uh, automotive, automotive repair shops or service shops. And so if you take a look at a car in the beginning, if you're not well versed, so for example, I'm not well versed with, uh, with, with vehicles. Like when I took my ASVAB, I scored pretty high on everything except for the mechanical part, right? I, they're asking what a monkey wrench is or what this wrench stuff is. And I was like, I have absolutely no clue. I don't know any of that stuff. I'm just not comfortable in that space. Now, when I talk to people who, who are, you know, who are very comfortable with, with cars, vehicles, engines, mechanical stuff to them. Yes. On the outside, it looks like it's very complicated. You have to deal with things like the engine parts, the transmission, the clutch, you have to deal with electronics to deal with all this stuff, but they could think through it as a whole. They could think through the whole system as a whole. And so the inevitability is, is that if you dip your toe into technology, you are going to be on this long journey of trying to figure out how to discover the system as a whole. And so what that entails then become is just because you're like frustrated by the fact that a website doesn't have an image the way that you want it. And you think to yourself, I want to try to inspect the code. I want to try to figure out, learn how to build the site the way I want it gets you on this process of saying, well, now I got to learn front end. 
I got to learn jQuery in order for me to do some animations, for example, that leads you to realizing jQuery might be limited in certain ways. And so now you have to learn JavaScript. And next thing you know, you're like, well, now I know how to do the JavaScript. I got to do the backend and this and that and that. Now, if you are the type of person that finds that enjoyable, you're going to be fine. If you're the type of person where like, I just don't like doing <laughs> that stuff. Guess what? You're probably going to be a better fit to say, I'm going to specialize. I'm going to specialize in only this thing. And I'm going to go seek out teams in which my specialty can benefit the team overall, right? So there's different strategies now involved in terms of what you like and don't like. And so don't necessarily be intimidated by the fact that there might be so much things going on. Just look at it from the perspective of like, how do I strategize in a way that I could use maybe my weaknesses to, as, as a potential strength? Or how do, I, how do I find myself specializing rather than generalizing? Or if you find yourself specializing isn't something I want to do, there are still lots of roles for a generalized person in technology and it actually serves you to, to kind of maybe try to figure out, find out, figure out how all that stuff works. So there's, there's the path for everybody. There's room for everybody. The space is huge. Everyone's getting into it. You all have to think about it one way or another. So it's not that bad. So Jerry, having said that, are there characteristics that people might have that lend themselves to not being successful coders? I think so. I think one thing too is I've seen this, I've seen this played out in a couple, in a couple situations. Um, one particular situation has been, there are people who are very talented, extremely talented um, in the sense where the way that their brain operates literally is just, just like a computer. Right. So that's just how their brain is wired. They could they could do that, you know, Neil in the Matrix type of approach where like they see all the little little symbols going around everywhere. That's how they think. They could think logically, they could th think systematically, they can think mathematically, all in their heads, all this stuff. Fantastic. But guess what? Being that talented in that role, you cannot single-handedly um, figure out how to take on the world. And inevitably, I think team, I think being part of a team or working in a team, being able to communicate with others is also equally as important of a skill set as you knowing how to code. And so I found times in situations where those type of people might be put into, into a good role where they say, we want to make use of your talent to try to push the boundaries a little bit or to do this and do that, make a new algorithm, crunch out some new numbers, crunch the data set faster, be more efficient, blah, blah, blah. They get put in that role and they just go into a deep rabbit hole and they never come out of it. And it pushes people away from working with them and it makes the whole team dynamic a miserable experience. And it ends up in a situation where inevitably they have to be let go. It doesn't matter how talented you are. If at the end of the day, you're put into a team dynamic, just like the military, if you're going to be a hotshot cowboy shooting off guns everywhere, you're not going to be a good fit. And there's going to be the system itself is going to try to figure out how to push you out of that because inevitably you're going to end up as a liability rather than an asset. So the, so, so, so the days, on, so the days of a stereotypical engineer or software developer being a cubicle by themselves and ground a code is like those days are pretty much gone, right? I think those are definitely way gone. I think we're way past that kind of particular uh, point, just because the, the complexity and, and the amount of work that we've been kind of put out has 
put yourself out of that now, right? So for example, if you want to make, if you want to, the biggest example right now is software is software is one of those things where a lot more people are getting more accessibility to it, which is fantastic. Um, it, it, the internet is democratizing your, your ability to participate. Fantastic. But then if you pull yourself back and you say to yourself, okay, this is all fine. But I want to go bare metal. I want to make silicon. I want to make the chips that goes inside the machines. You're not going to do that single handedly. You're going to have to rely on a team. You're going to, you know, it doesn't matter where you are, whether it's Apple, Google, whether it's going to be uh, Intel, whatever, you're still going to be stuck in the team and you still have to be putting in team efforts. You still have to be part of a, a, a greater hold in yourself. And so, the complexity required to to build that versus what was done back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010 to now, it just it's escalated, right? Like you have Moore's law that just kept on kind of keeping keeping us up on this high curve. You are single handling not going to superhuman yourself into that situation and knowing how to do every single one of those things. So now I think the effort is better placed on how do I work in the team dynamic, and not only that, how do I communicate. How do I share what I know? So that way I'm not the one having to do all the work. Here's the other thing too, the last part. Eventually you get to a point where <clears throat> everyone does this. I think sometimes the best coders are the laziest coders. I've heard that plenty of times. <laughs> <laughs> Just because, you know, if you are able to do a lot of things, you're going to be excited early on to do a lot of things. Then you're going to get tired you know, get bored and you find yourself, I only want to do the cool things or the fun things. And so inevitably you get to a point where it's like, I don't want to do so much work. Like I can single-handedly build out the whole website, set up the server, launch it, publish it, do all that stuff. But why? You know what I'm saying? Like, but why? Like if, if I could delegate that out, if I could delegate that out and I could go home at five o'clock and enjoy my dinner and, and, you know, have some family time or, or do this and do that. Why am I stuck in the office nonstop doing this stuff? Right. And so I think inevitably you get to a point where everyone ages to the point where they're just realizing I could do the work, but I don't want to. So maybe the best trick I can figure out now is how do I put myself in a situation where I could teach other people or communicate to other people to all share in a workload. So that way we can succeed together rather than me having to do it all by myself. So I think everyone ends up at that wall. And now how you get past that wall is up to you. So yeah, so I think the, the last part I was saying was just trying to figure out how to uh, work together as a team, just because you know I think everyone gets to the point where they're going to face that, that, that moment of truth where they realize I could be doing all the work. I could take all the, I could do the blaze of glory and I could take all the credit, blah, blah, blah. But why should I? But why? I could go home. I could have a good work-life balance. All it really takes is to figure out how to work together as a team, communicate well, teach, share, and uh, take on leadership. So therefore, people can all benefit from the project you're working on. So Jerry, next, a two-part question. First part is like, Pozo's a developer, a developer out there. He's doing his job. He's a good coder. And is he has and he's working for someone who's a founder. And they're, and they're like, they know the basics about tech. They know how to code. They really don't know anything about it, right? And, you know, the coder is like putting his work, doing what he needs to do. But the, the startup front is kind of impatient. Like, you're not going fast enough. You're not going fast enough. What's going on? How does a coder like manage expectations, right? And the second part is like, 
how does a not tech founder make sure like they're not being taken advantage of by a coder, so to speak, right? Mm. This is so this is great. So this is after after I did my stint over in corporate in startup world. Um, I spent four years uh, doing consulting and I really, really enjoyed the aspect of it. Um, I got to I got to be able to work on different projects. I got to work on projects intimately with with founders. Um, I get to I get to have more leeway rather than being stuck in the corporate environment where maybe I, I get feel like I feel stifled. And in my experience of consulting, what I realize now is twofold. Uh, project management is hard. It is extremely hard. Uh, time estimation is extremely hard. And that's not to say that just because you say that out loud, that somehow you're absolved of your responsibility from being good at it, right? Like it just means that you have to figure out how to put a little bit more attention on it. And so what I learned is a couple of things. One is definitely, again, it comes back to this, communicate well. Figure out how to be ahead of the curve a little bit. If if you're going to... The rule of thumb that I've been taught has always been whatever timeline you're going to give out, multiply by three. Because most likely, most likely it will be accurate. Worst case is going to be accurate. Uh, no, best case is going to be accurate. Worst case is that maybe you go over it. And you know what? Honestly, if you even end up ahead of it, you're going to be a winner anyways. Right. So always try to figure out how to pad in that time. When I first started the consulting part and I was working with people and projects and stuff like that, I thought I want to, I want to be accurate because that was my tendency as a developer, as a as software engineer was I, I valued accuracy over anything else. Cause you're working with code, code either works or doesn't. So therefore accuracy is a big value set. So I thought I was treat, I would treat project management the same way. I would accurately give you my assessment at the time of saying that this is always on take. Then as I get through it, either it's factors out of my control or in my control, whether it's, uh, whether it's change orders from the, the stakeholder or it's going to be me overestimating my capabilities, the time slips. And that's when the accuracy comes to bite me in the butt at the end. There's only so much sympathy to get out of people by saying, I missed this deadline <laughs> towards the end. Um, and once you kind of play out that sympathy card, you get to a situation where none of that matters anymore, right? And so I started learning, okay, you have to then figure out how to communicate and work with people who are not as uh, accurate as, say, as computers, right? It's a two different worlds. And so with people, I think what you really have to do is you really have to figure out how to maintain a good relationship by being transparent, by communicating, by building up trust, by building, by doing all these lot of soft, soft skills, right? Um, so one thing is definitely figure out how to know in your mind, based on experience, what your track record looks like, what your work record looks like. Give people, give people way longer leeway, so therefore you can find yourself the time to be able to do it, and then also kind of. Also think through like how can you communicate in a really simple in, in the simplified way what are the challenges you're going through? So therefore you could also share out the risks that you're 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 tackling so that way the other stakeholders who may not be technical can go in on that with you. 
because people want to see you succeed. So if you kind of let them understand, you know what, there is a risk here. If you want to make this change order, if you want to build out this feature, the risk could be that we have to spend more time or effort, more resources on it. They have to make that prioritization for you. Right. And so if you have a good working relationship on both sides, you could help out with that prioritization. You could understand that prioritization. Um, and you're not going to feel like you're stuck having to always do that type of stuff. That's a very corporate kind of mindset where you get stuck, where you'll have to do stuff you don't want to do. Um, that said, the flip side, if you're a founder, if you're a tech founder, if, if, you, if you are trying to build up something or you could even just be a business operator that is trying to hire somebody to help you rebuild your website. You know, it all goes all levels. What you should really focus on is a couple things. Just like the way that you would seek out somebody to help you rebuild, remodel your kitchen or your bathroom. One, definitely look into whether or not the person you want to work with has any referrals, any word of mouth, any any reviews, any 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 way to kind of get a judge of whether or not they're gonna be good at what they do. See past because also you might you're probably not gonna sit there and analyze the GitHub profile because that's just not you know part of your day. That's not something you want to do. So really, it then comes from the fact that is there a social proof that I should work with this person? Is this gonna be a, a good situation to be in? And the second part too is get the person that's working with you to come up with a plan and stick with that plan. Because the thing too is also there's gonna be a point where developers want to play this leeway where they say to yourself, you know what? This is just so complicated. I'm the only one that knows how to do it. And then they're gonna try to figure out how to like throw out the magic hands and wave all this stuff away. So definitely make them commit to a plan and stick to that plan. Set incentives for completing the plan. And so making it so that your payment uh, for the project is in piecemeal, that release of the payment is gonna be dependent on milestones that the developers achieve. So therefore it's fair all across the board. And you know what, at a certain point, you really just got to figure out how to cut someone loose. If it's a situation where it just doesn't work out anymore. I have been in situations where I have was in consulting where I get brought into jobs where the person was saying to me, Hey, I've been working with the developer for close to two years two years or more. I've been paying him regularly, but I still can't get to where I got to go. And when I, t- I talk to them, I say, okay, let's, let's open up the hood and then see what's inside it. And you realize code is missing. What was promised is not delivered, blah, 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 blah. It really is a, one of those situations where it's, it, it, it's very risky. It's a very risky endeavor overall to invest money into software engineering, into development to invest into, into websites, don't cheap out on it. You definitely have to pay the right price for it. Also, don't get ripped off by paying too much for it. But also, if you feel like you're getting a too good of a deal, that's also a good, a good sign that this is not going to work out. Coding takes time. It takes knowledge. All those things get built up. And so if someone comes in and say, you know what, my billable rate is X amount, and someone from far off in the third world country comes to you and say, my rate could be way less that. Don't just jump on that rate. You still need to figure out how to have a face-to-face good working relationship. You have to build up that trust. You have to figure out how to find someone that communicates well. You have to figure out how to you know, instill a good business contract into the process. You have to put in the right incentives to motivate the person to get it done. So if you cheap out on them early on, you're both screwed. 
You know what I'm saying? Like that person that's developing doesn't want to sit there. Maybe they, they, they say they'll take a lower rate just like so they could get a job, but now they're screwed because they can't make any money off of it. There's no more incentive for them to stick around with it. So it really is a both sides type of situation where you have to balance out the, the incentives and the needs on both sides, right? Developers need to communicate really well. They need to pad the time so therefore they can manage the time management really well. The project owners or the stakeholders need to figure out how to incentivize correctly. They need to figure out how to verify. They need to understand that you know developers can't just work for cheap. They can't be just treated like uh, throwaway code monkeys and stuff like that. And you have to really figure out how to get both sides to work. It's rare, and that's the reason why so many projects fail. <laughs> that's the reason why there's so many dead end projects everywhere. So the only thing you could do to get better out of it, though, is again. Focus on communication, focus on teams, focus on a lot of the soft skills that ends up being the business part of this, right? So you could be the best artist in the world. You could be a Rembrandt, you could be a Michelangelo, you know how to work the brush, you know how to do the colors, blah, blah, blah. But guess what? At the end of the day, if you're not going to be a good business person to figure out how to do all that stuff, you're not going to get that far. So... Thanks, Jerry. That's a great point. So switch from subjects a little bit. Let's switch to Buckle Labs. So me and Jerry both volunteer at Buckle Labs, me in Seattle and, and Jerry down the Bay Area. So what Buckle Labs does, we help military veterans, military spouses, and military dependents, pretty much anyone in the military connect community, start companies and grow the companies, right? And we're like across the United States. Um, Jerry, so you can talk about some of what's going on down the barrier. With the Bunker Labs. Sure. I love Bunker Labs. So uh, I got the, uh, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to participate in the Bunker Labs program. It is a national program. Um, they're based, I believe, in DC, if anything. So or, Chicago. Uh, Chicago. Headquarters in Chicago, yeah. Headquarters in Chicago. And they have a, uh, a program called Veterans in Residence in a partnership with WeWork. And what's been helpful so far has been it is a six month program in which you're part of a cohort. Uh, in the individual city. So each city has a chapter. Uh, my chapter is in the SF Bay Area. We're based out of San Francisco. Jason is based out of Seattle. There's also chapters out in LA, New York, Chicago, different places and so forth. And going through the six-month pro- process, you get to be part of a team um, that is going through and trying to figure out how to really boost your business as a veteran Right. And that comes with a couple of different things. One is you have the challenge of figuring out how to actually get something started. You have the challenge of figuring out how to portray or share out your story specifically as a veteran business owner um, or veteran spouse or, uh, or a current military person all across the board. And I've been in this program now for two cohorts already, and this is now my third cycle. And this cycle, I'm now kind of elevated to a alumni captain, which then entails that I should be in the better, I should be in the role now where I should definitely nurture and mentor and try and push and boost people up more so. So I'm really excited about that opportunity. What we're focusing on this round is to, we're still stuck doing virtual just because of what's happening uh, with this pandemic and so forth. And so we're going to rely on virtual in order for us to kind of combine together and kind of really shape ourselves the next upcoming six months to gather up the skill sets, to gather up the confidence, to gather up the resources that we could use to benefit ourselves. Um, I'm really looking forward to it. And uh, it's, it's been a great experience so far. And the one key value 
I could get out of it, aside from the fact that we get to partner with WeWork and have access to WeWork buildings, is the fact that it re reignited a part of something that I felt was missing when I actually left the Marine Corps way, way back then, which is a sense of esprit de corps, the sense of team camaraderie. When I was in the Marine Corps, one, you know, having lots of challenges were just normal, normal days, right? For us, um, you might be told that your mission is to tackle this, to do this, to do that, and you don't have enough time, resources, people, equipment. You're just told to make do, right? And back then, it felt really intimidating. It felt really, really hard. But the thing that was able to get myself and other people across is just to know that there's people backing you up people next to you to the right to the left of you in front of you behind you whatever the case may be they're going to help you out because you guys we all wore the same uniform and we all are in it together when i left the service when i left the military i got back into the civilian world that that kind of feeling, I've never been able to capture it anywhere else. Whether it's at a big corporation where they would tell you all kinds of stuff saying, hey, we're here for you. We got all kinds of services for you to even small startups where they try to portray the team as like we're in the family, like we're all families, we're all work together. We, you know, we, we work together, we eat together, we hang out together, we drink together and we're family. But even though, even if that's the case in the back of your mind, you say like, this isn't quite it. This is not quite it, right? And so when I was able to participate in the Bunker Labs program in veterans and residents, um, being part of a cohort, being with other people, you find connections within that cohort that empowers you to feel like, hey, they're going through the same bullshit I'm going through. They're having the same frustrations with time management, with personnel management, trying to figure out how to get financing, trying to figure out how to do paperwork, trying to do this and do that. They're going through the same thing. And that makes it so that it feels like I could do it too. Because if I find a if I find a tip, I find a shortcut. I'm gonna share that. If they find a tip or a shortcut, they're gonna share that with me back. And so that has that literally empowered me to then tackle bigger challenges that I myself would probably would not have done. So now a year later, looking back, my growth came from so many different ways. Partly from Bunker Labs, actually sharing resources, uh, seminars, master classes, information and knowledge in which they made me understand or learn something new to the fact that just having feeling like I have a home base out of a WeWork office to the comfort of that to also the ability to say, hey, you know what, I could call up certain people in my cohort whether they're in now or in the past that I could still rely on them to kind of give me some pep talk or give me some heads up or give me some information. All of that made it so that I can be where I am now having the comfort, having the confidence to say, Hey, you know what? I'm going to try to open up a restaurant in the worst year possible to take on a restaurant business. Right. But to me, I'm like, you know what? It's possible because of the fact that there's other people with me at the same time in the VRR trying to figure out how to tackle that problem. Jerry, can you talk some about your restaurant business? So I have, this is, this is a fun thing. So in the um, three years ago, when I switched gears, um, <clears throat> I had an inkling, uh, this little idea, this little startup idea where I felt like there was, there was a, there was a particular thing that everyone does. And you can't escape it no matter what. And it's more pervasive than just technology. And that's the idea that people eat. Everyone eats no matter what. 
you know, throughout the day, multiple times a day, one time a day, or sometimes, and that's happening now more and more, sometimes they only eat at all for that day. So based on that gut kind of gut feeling, I was thinking to myself, what I really want to try to pursue is that I'm really interested in, in trying to figure out <clears throat> how to how to instill some technology into the restaurant space because I feel like that could be a, a good market space for, for some innovation, for changes, and so forth. So rather than rather than saying to myself, I'm just gonna start a company and uh um, but yeah, so what, what I was saying was, you know, my thinking at the time was rather than build a company that I'm going to build products and try to sell to restaurant owners, I'm just going to go ahead and start a restaurant. I'm going to do it the hard way. I'm going to do it like the, the Mustang way. I'm going to try to figure out how being listed and I'm going to switch over to the officer level, right? Um, <clears throat> I started this whole process. Uh, my, my, my MLS in the Marine Corps was a Marine combat engineer. And so I was well versed with construction, with doing all these different types of stuff. So I was super happy about that. And I started this process of, of building out an uh, ice cream shop. I built out a boba shop. And I now currently just built up a, a cafe, uh, serving out specialty coffee. And along the way, I learned so much in terms of like, this is, this is the ground level. Like, imagine if you're just trying to figure out how to get started a business service, a service type of business is probably the most convenient, most straightforward, accessible type of way. But even then, there is still so many different challenges. Cash flow is a problem. Hiring is a problem. Training is a problem. You're really getting to the nitty gritty of doing the business at the very bare level with like very minimal amount of resources. And I just took that challenge as much as I can. And along the way, learned a lot of what could be done better to technology. So I'm very grateful for that experience so far. This year, I'm looking forward to actually executing on some of those ideas because now I have the insider view, right? By being able to open up these restaurants and these, these cafes, I have an insider view of understanding that there might be a, a corresponding or correlating or relatable challenge that a lot of people have. I can introduce new products and kind of go from there. Um, What's funny though is along the way, this past couple of years, I get bombarded by sales calls from lots of people <laughs> with technology solutions. So there's always someone eager to sell me a better scheduling software, uh, a better hiring software, a better training software, a better payroll software, a better payment processor, better POS, tons of solution providers in the space. So um, that kind of goes to show like it's a huge space. Lots of innovations can happen. I'm super excited about this year, uh, leveraging Bunker Labs, Veterans in Residence, leveraging my past experience of opening up the, the stores to then kind of say to myself, okay, now's the time. What do I do to build up a technology business that can then benefit a lot of these uh, business owner operators? Gary, is there anything that you want to talk about or anything that I did not ask you that you want to talk about? Um, at this time, at this time, I think one of the things I'm really fascinated by is just if I, I think I think what's happening now is there it, there is a very unique change um, brought on by particularly the pandemic um, and how global it is, which is this idea that, um, in my view of it, it's coming from a small business owner operator, which is that at this at the lower level a lot of businesses are going out. They're just, they're just, there's being taken out. 
And what ends up happening is, is that you have the corporations who are able to kind of survive this long term. Um, if you head out, if, if, if you have the ability to head out for essential trips or for whatever the case may be, and you're in need of something, whether it is a coffee or a food, I think what's ended up happening now is most times people end up going to drive-thrus, which is convenient. Uh, you have your Starbucks drive-thrus, you have your McDonald's, you have your fast food, you have all that stuff. They're thriving. If you ever take a chance to sit there and just look, they're thriving. The line for those drive-thrus are around the block. Uh, if you take a look at corporate chains, franchises, um, Domino's is thriving. Pizza shops are thriving, but the local shops are not. And so I think there is going to be something really interesting going into the next generation where this is going to reverberate throughout. Focus more so on being an entrepreneur, focus more so on being a small business owner, and focus more so on being an owner-operator. Because I think the next couple of years, the title used to be back in the past, everyone wants to be an entrepreneur. Everyone wants to be an entrepreneur. Everyone wants to be a tech founder. They want to be this, they want to be that. But my thesis now is going forward. I think people will want to be something different. They want to be an owner-operator because that is actually a really hard thing to do. And the joy you get out of it, though, the success you get out of it, though, is going to be way more interesting than just being an entrepreneur. I think entrepreneur is such a, a blanket word now that everyone uses just because they want to say that that's what they are. But I think the next level to that is you want to be an owner-operator. You want to figure out how to own assets because that's the only way for you to get wealth in America. And the second part is you have to be an operator. You have to learn how to operate your business because if you're capable of doing that, you'll have, you'll have a way to figure out how to scale that out and figure out how to build up more wealth. So working by itself is great and all. Seeking to be an entrepreneur is great and all. But I think where a lot of people are going to end up in the next couple of years is kind of say to themselves, I am now an owner-operator. I have an LLC, I have an S-Corp, I have whatever the case may be. That is going to be my pirate ship. And I'm going to head off. I'm going to try to figure out how I go find my hidden treasure somewhere. And so to all those type of people out there that resonates with that or kind of get that sense um, and you guys need help, definitely reach out to me. I would love to kind of connect with more people where they kind of say to themselves, I got the entrepreneurship bug, but I'm past that now. I'm at this point where I grew up. I'm mature a little bit. I have an actual business. I have a license. I have it, you know, I have it permitted. It's been operating for a little bit. I'm getting a little bit of revenue stream, but I want to grow it. And so therefore, as the owner operator, what is it I could do to improve myself to figure out how I get that to go? Jerry, can you share your social media so people can reach out to you? Sure. Fantastic. So definitely find me on Twitter. Uh, I am Yo Jerry Wang, J-E-R-Y-W-A-N-G on Twitter. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn with the same username. So find me on LinkedIn uh, at Yo Jerry Wang. Um, I'm trying something new now as well. So if you have a chance, uh, find me on Clubhouse because everyone has, seems to be having a Clubhouse. Yeah, I'm on, I just now. got on there too. <laughs> but, um, but Clubhouse is a very engaging platform. I definitely enjoy it. So you can also find me there. Um, yeah, so those would be the three primary places to find me. I used to have a website, but my website domain expires. So I'm going to try to figure out how to get that back this year. So, And to our listeners, we'll have his links on our show notes. You can find the show notes at www.cabinetshblog.com. And be sure to share this episode with your friends. And be sure to uh, subscribe, rate, and review the Jason Cabinet experience on your favorite podcast platform. So, Jerry, we're coming in and we'll talk. Can you provide us any advice or wisdom on anything you want to talk about? 
Um, yeah, definitely figure out if you want to be on this path of being a coder, uh, there are lots of resources. I could definitely point you to different directions. Um, if you're going to be past that a little bit and you say to yourself, I'm itching to be an entrepreneur, there's also lots of resources definitely recommend, especially if you're a military member or a spouse, definitely look into Bunker Labs. Um, there's lots of resources I could point you in that direction. And if you're past the entrepreneurship level and you're at the point where you have a viable business, a small business, you're looking to grow and scale that out reach out to me as well. I definitely have resources for you to help grow from there as well. Jerry, thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it. No worries. Thank you for the time. And to our listeners, thanks for your time as well. And remember to be great every day. Thank you again for listening to this episode of the Jason Cabinets Experience. We're asking for your support for our rewards-based crowdfunding campaign for Cabinets HR, either through your donation or by sharing this link with your networks. We are doing a rewards-based crowdfunding campaign to continue the build-out of Cabinets HR. Go to https colon backslash backslash cabinetshr.cl slash crowdfunding for more details and to donate. Thanks for your time today and remember to be great every day. Thank you for listening to
this episode of the Jason Kavnis Experience. Be sure to connect with us across social media at Kavnis HR. Thank you, and remember to be great every day. Don't you know?